Welcome back to the Movie Bevel Podcast. This week you have myself and Brennan um, as we're talking about all things HBO, HBO Max, as well as Mank, The Godfather, Coda, and just a few other odds and ends. Um, so let's go ahead and just jump into the big one. And this is the Warner Media um, HBO Max announcement that came out earlier this week. And so basically, this follows pretty much exactly in the vein of the Wonder Woman release. Uh, so Wonder Woman will release in the U.S. on Christmas Day in theaters and um, on HBO Max. And so HBO Max has come out and said, hey, we're actually going to be doing this for all of Warner Brothers 2021 releases, uh, which includes a lot of big stuff like the Suicide Squad. You've got Godzilla vs. Kong in there, the Batman, uh, just a pretty hefty slate of movies that are going to be streaming at the same time they're playing in theaters so the only real caveat to this is that they aren't just indefinitely on hbo max so you have roughly 30 days once the movies hit their theatrical release that will they'll be available on hbo max you know i would assume that most of these movies will again end up on hbo max at some point after the theatrical release um, but this is just kind of their response to the COVID pandemic. And obviously it's, it's gotten a lot of backlash, um, a lot of people for it. What are, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I think safety wise, this is probably the smart way to go because I think 2021 is going to be an interesting year where, you know, the vaccine rollouts coming, I think in the U S as early as like next week or so and up here in canada as early as january i believe and it's going to be a long rollout it might take like up to eight to ten maybe 12 months for it to be to everyone who wants it um starting obviously with frontline workers and vulnerable population then working all the way down to children and it's going to be a long rollout but i think every month the more people do get vaccinated um things will get better for sure so 2021 is an interesting year, and I think what they're looking at is we they, they don't want to have the same issues as 2020. They don't want to keep kicking their feet. They want to take action here, and it's, in my opinion, a safe move, if you will. Um, it's also a move that is a little upsetting as well because it, it will hurt theaters, and I'm not for that at all. Um, but it's also a move that I think the 30-day thing I think is very interesting, right? You only have 30 days to watch these movies on HBO Max when they drop. Um, and then obviously they leave HBO Max and all you have is that theater option for the time being. Um, but as a Canadian, I'm pretty upset with this decision just because I guess for me, we might be able to see theaters open at some point safely in 2021, but we don't have HBO Max and pretty much none of the rest of the world besides the US has HBO Max. So we might see a deal struck somewhere else, but it's something that is very much, I think, U.S. centric in this in this decision to put their uh, tentpole films on streaming for 2021 as well as theaters. It's an interesting call. Um, and after I'll, I'll let you say another point here, but I do have something to bring up as well about this in a bit. Yeah, so I think it is just kind of, you know, it's it's one of those things where I understand why this decision is being made um you know especially since warner brothers is kind of the the one studio that's really shot themselves in the foot as far as covid goes you know tenant came out and was supposed to save theaters and they ended up uh not not doing so hot with it 
um, at least domestically, you know, it, it has continued to climb, um, but it just didn't get the mind-blowing Christopher Nolan release money that they kind of assumed it would. And so I understand why Warner Brothers would kind of be the first to fold. Um, and you're also seeing, you know, they're not alone. Disney did this with Mulan, which as of last weekend is now completely free. Uh, as, as long as you have a Disney Plus subscription, they did this with Soul, which will come out the same day as Wonder Woman, Christmas Day, but only on Disney Plus. Um, so we're seeing a lot of theaters uh, flirting with this idea anyways, or sorry, not theaters, but uh, uh, production companies. And I, I just, I, I'm concerned in the sense that, yeah, like theaters have struggled um, more than a lot of industries right now. There's no real silver lining on the horizon. Um, in terms of movies that'll bring people back in to buy popcorn. Um, there's no real silver lining on any kind of government bailout. And I think what you're going to see is a lot of people um, that want to see these movies, even if you know this is your average theater goer pre-COVID, at least for these bigger tentpole films, um, that's probably just going to opt to stay home. You know, you don't have to pay for more than the monthly subscription. You know, that's that's the price of one ticket right there. Um, and a lot of people who don't really feel comfortable going out yet are going to feel the same way. You know, I, I could watch the same movie at home or in a theater with other people. Um, so I think it's going to hurt their overall theatrical runs. Um, especially because people will have that 30-day period where they have the option to do both. Um, now, the one way I think this might actually end up working out is just with the word of mouth, because a lot more people will have access to the content right away. So for movies that just get rave reviews, um, I think this could actually help their uh, later theatrical run as, as this country starts to be a little bit safer to go out in. Yeah, no, for sure. Um and you know what? I, I am I am confident that at least at some point next year we'll see box office figures that hit like uh, normal levels. But what I am hoping to see is, I mean, I think we were encouraged in August with the tenant numbers overseas, right? Like it didn't do that well in the United States. It made it's it's nearly approaching sixty million in the U.S. But the movie did crack three hundred million overseas, as you said, um, which is pretty much on par with Dunkirk right? For the, for Dunkirk's overseas uh, earnings. So that's pretty impressive. And all things considered, I think if there were, there was no COVID, it, it would do even, even better. Um, so we might see, depending on how things go, I know that there are, are a lot of places in the world right now that are peaking as even Canada case wise, we're peaking. Um, but if we can get back down and, and, and the vaccines start coming in, we might see good overseas numbers for the box office. But yeah, this is an interesting call. And as you said, the, the price of admission, um, like it, it's definitely a, a reasonable debate to have. But one thing I did want to point out is I, I don't know if, if HBO Max alone will help uh, Warner Bros. bring back and recoup that revenue of movies that need to make like $400 million plus to break even. And I think that's where theaters are, are, are key. And that's where theaters are the... Um, best way to generate revenue so i think this hybrid uh this hybrid system might be interesting i'm excited to see like how a movie will do like so so say you have a weekend here you have a blockbuster say it's like uh wonder woman uh it comes out it has it's its first weekend there on hbo max and then also at the same time it makes say 30 million in the theaters in in, in the u.s um it, it, it'll be interesting to see the margins it'll be interesting to see like how much of a dent it takes out of, of theater earnings, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's definitely going to be something to watch next year. 
Yeah, and I think especially when you have movies like Wonder Woman that were billion-dollar hits, you know, three years ago, um, and this is the sequel, it's very anticipated, especially in such a starved market as far as superhero movies go this year. Um, I just don't see how you're going to come anywhere close to that same kind of gains on the same product. Um, it, it just comes down to the fact that it's a lot cheaper to pay 15 bucks a month and have five people watch this movie for 30 days than it is to, you know, go out and buy five tickets for one afternoon. And especially people that are going to repeat it and, and play it multiple times that probably would have gone two or three times in the theaters. You're just losing out on a lot of that revenue. So I really don't see how this is anything more than kind of a Band-Aid solution just so they can keep the ball rolling and, and keep interest and in product out there. Um, you know, they, I'm, I'm assured that the, the men and women behind these decisions that Warner Brothers have more info on that than I do. Um, but, but as for how this, this kind of decision is really going to pay off for them financially in the long run, I just don't see it happening to that same degree of success. I agree. I 100% agree. That's why I think this is a part-time solution due to COVID-19 to try to somehow find a way to um, recoup much better than they did in 2020 before hopefully in 2022 focusing blockbusters back to the big screen. But this is definitely something that will probably stick for medium to small uh, films. I think this will definitely stick for, for smaller films. Um, and even up to medium-sized movies, which there aren't as many of them anymore, but I think this will definitely stick for those. Um, but for blockbusters, I think by 2022, I mean, who knows with, with the way everything goes, but I think uh, the, the studios will want to be heavily focusing back on just theaters uh, two years from now. Yeah, you know, there's one man releasing a movie in 2022 that can save cinemas and that is director sam raimi uh coming back from his nine-year directing hiatus um dr strange too but uh the key the key being here is sam raimi can bring theaters back yeah you know, we oh, yeah. we tried christopher nolan didn't really work but sam is same as the guy yeah, he'll do it. You know what I'm also interested in for how, how big it could be if they do strike that deal on the Spider-Man 3 with Tom Holland, or sorry, with uh, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. If they're able to get that done, I think that would actually be a uh, a great drawback to the theaters. Yeah, and uh, Spider-Man 3 is supposedly still set for December of next year, so. Mm -hmm. it, could, it could line up really well, considering that it'll probably be a few months after when the rollout officially ends yeah so we'll we'll kind of see um and i i think having wonder woman release simultaneously uh here at the end of the month will probably be a solid indicator of how these other movies might fare and how this might actually end up working out for um warner brothers but but as for now it's just kind of a sad situation mm -hmm. for sure so that is the Warner Brothers news, and fortunately, Netflix is still just churning out crazy amounts of content. Um, so we'll run through the Netflix top 10. So in the number one spot is Peppermint, number two, Marauders, number three, The Christmas Chronicles 2, number four, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, number five, The Christmas Chronicles, number six, Rust Creek, number seven, Captain Underpants, Mega Blissmas. Uh, number eight, the second 
number nine, Hillbilly Elegy, and number 10, Little Nicky. Um, one thing that's really noticeably absent here is Mank, which was, you know, supposed to be kind of Netflix's big original release for this week. You know, it's David Fincher. Um, it's part of his uh, big production deal with Netflix uh, that's unfortunately getting in the way of Mindhunter. Um, but it's not on the top 10 list. Uh, but, you know, we'll we'll dive into that movie um, a little bit more here in a minute. But that just kind of surprises me that it, you know, didn't even come in at nine or ten. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a shame. I think that this movie will get watched. I think it will get watched. I think the people that want to see it are all going to watch it. I just don't know if it'll break through uh, to more mainstream audiences now. Obviously, Christmas movies and such are really dominating right now. That is kind of an issue for um, Mank or for other movies that do want to break through into this top 10 because it's it's the Christmas season and that's what everyone's just kind of sitting down and popping on all day. Um, but who knows? I think that I mean, it, it, it's weird to see. It definitely is weird to see because usually these uh, Netflix originals that are by big name directors that are being pushed pretty heavily, they're all over the top 10 when they first come out. So I think this it's it's a weird start for sure, to say the least, but I am excited to hopefully get into it a little bit. Yep. Um, I also find it interesting that Peppermint uh, was the number one. Uh, this is a movie that just kind of came and died. <laughs> in the theaters two years ago. Um, so this movie is pretty much word for word, the Punisher origin story, um, just with a female lead instead of the Punisher. And um, it's just kind of a big, almost quasi superhero revenge story. Um, but it is just killing on Netflix's top 10 list right now, uh, which I, I think is interesting whenever you see something that never really had a life in the theaters, just come and do crazy success when it's streaming yeah i was probably one of the rare people that saw this in theaters i remember watching this in theaters um that's kind of weird to me that it's, it's number one i don't know what's going on there with that uh but it is number one that's really all i have to say about that <laughs> yeah uh peppermint is a movie um it is i can't over exaggerate just like how much of a ripoff this is on the punisher story but um it's it's there and then i did find it interesting that hillbilly elegy um dropped quite a bit you know was it the number two spot last week i mean it's still ahead of make but uh dropped all the way to number nine i think that probably has a lot to do with just how much it's been panned overall um and then gotta give a quick shout out to captain underpants mega blissmas in at number seven <laughs> Um, as someone who grew up on the Captain Underpants books, it's nice to see it still having life 15 years later. Mm -hmm. Most certainly. Um, and even you got Christmas Chronicles 1 and 2 on here. I haven't seen the second one yet, but I'm a fan of the first one, to be honest. I, I think it's a good Christmas movie. Yeah, I've uh, never actually do, uh, like taken the time to dive into either one. So maybe someday. <laughs> someday. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that is the top 10. Um, not very exciting this week, at least in terms of uh, new releases that are coming out. Um, but Mank is here. Um, this has been kind of a, a hot item in the, the critical circles for the past year. Um, so it's the story of Herman Mankiewicz and his screenwriting for the movie Citizen Kane, as well as his fight to get credit and recognition for that. Um, so this is, again, it's a feature film. It's a part of his big overall deal with Netflix. Um, it's opened to 
pretty solid reviews around the block. Uh, Brendan and I both got a chance to check it out, and we have some thoughts. I like this movie a lot. Uh, I, I probably won't dive into any spoilers or anything because I'd like to have all three of us, or at least Nick, on two uh, before we discuss that. And it's just so new, right? Just a couple of days old. But I, I really did enjoy this movie. I think I'm going to have to watch it again. I'm going to try to do at some point, maybe in January or so, as we do get closer to the um, deep into the award season, probably double feature this and Citizen Kane. Um just to kind of really uh, feel it all at once. But I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. I laughed a lot. I thought it was quite funny and witty. Um, Gary Oldman's pretty good in it as well. Uh, he, he's great, actually. Um, but for me, it's just like I, I'm, I'm not a super big Mindhunter fan. I've never watched it, so I don't really feel this pain as you do. But I'm just happy to see that David Fincher made a movie. You know, it's been since Gone Girl, six, six years, um, six plus years, so. It's it's definitely uh, interesting to see. Yeah, and I would agree. Um, the thing that really struck me about this movie was the sound design. Um, so really from the moment you turn it on, it, it has this very um, stylistically old Hollywood intro and, and title. Um, but then just the sound design for the whole movie just really feels like you're watching something that was recorded in the 1940s or even the early 1950s. Um, and I don't think visually the camera work um, gives you kind of that same feel, but the sound just really drew me in and just really kept me grounded um, in this world. And, um, you know, everybody's kind of talking with these voices that you associate with the the old Hollywood stars of the day. And, and you know, the women have these like higher pitched bubbly voices and, and all the dialogue just feels kind of echoey like it would coming through a lot of the older analog sound systems. Um, and so just from a pure craftsmanship standpoint, you know, not even jumping into anything that I liked about the, the script or the movie itself, like that part just really, really took me away. Yeah, I would agree 100%. Um, it's a very well-constructed movie. And I mean, you you wouldn't really expect anything less from Fincher, but I think this is arguably uh, his best, um, uh, like arguably, I'd say, I guess, yeah, from that craftsmanship point of view, probably his best made movie i don't think this is his best movie but i just i'm just saying kind of from a technical prowess i think there's a lot in here that is just so well done and well constructed that i would say um this has to be probably one of his best put together movies like just production design wise uh, maybe as you said the cinematography or the, or the camera work wasn't as kind of on par with that old hollywood as the sound design but just a lot of the technical elements of this film is definitely up to another level um, in terms of uh, the Fincher filmography. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that same effect we saw with Scorsese last year when The Irishman came out. Um, when you see a master director just have basically unlimited money um, when you're working with Netflix and just have like the full amount that they want to technically bring their movie to life the way they imagined. Uh, and so I think that made a huge difference with the Irishman. I think it makes a huge difference with this because um, the skill is always there, but the resources aren't. And so Netflix is just giving them as many resources as they want um, as long as they bring their skill to the table. And I think Mank is a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, I don't know if I want to get any awards prospects yet without Nick here, but I think this could go a long way in terms of David Fincher winning a couple of best directors at a couple of different shows. I mean, I got to see a lot of the slate. I mean, it's a, it's a two month longer award season, but 
it's just just the way this movie is put together and directed is fantastic. Um, his his father wrote the screenplay for this. Um, he passed away 17 years ago, I believe now. Um, I, I find that to be just a very interesting dynamic uh, with this movie as well. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it's definitely something that sat on the table a while, but it still feels very fresh. Um, there's a lot of the political messages. I mean, they're very overt political messages in the movie um, that deal with Upton Sinclair and, and just the, the California races in the 1930s. Um, but it like it, it hits very close to home just in terms of like everything that's going on um, in the year 2020, um, as well as just the last four years in American politics. Um, so even though the script is, uh, you know, a little bit old at this point, like it, it still feels very fresh and very relevant. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed this is a little tidbit here. That's interesting. But um, did you see uh, Bill Nye in the movie? Yeah, I had to Google it because <laughs> I was like, Bill Nye doesn't act, does he? And then, <laughs> yeah, Bill Nye. Um, it, was, it was a nice little cameo. Yeah, uh, I mean, they don't really show his face head on, uh, but I heard his voice, and I'm like, mm, yeah, maybe, and then you kind of see him from the side, and I'm like, yeah, that's uh, that's Bill Nye, <laughs> and uh, I quickly looked at it, I quickly checked Letterboxd there, and I scrolled all the way down, he's uncredited in the role, but I thought that was very interesting to see uh, Bill Nye in here. It doesn't really do a whole, whole heck of a lot, as, as we said, but uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny, nonetheless. Yeah, it's just, it catches you off guard, and then, yeah, it's like, you have to do a double take, but if, I could see, like, if you're not really paying attention, like, it'd be so easy to miss, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, and I, I think it, like, it works really well um, oh, for yeah. the character that he's playing. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I did want to know, without getting into the scenes at all, but I, I, I would say, I don't know if you would agree, but any scene where there's a dinner party or, or kind of everyone's hanging out and pretty much there's just a ton of people in the room is a near brilliant scene in terms of a, a screenwriting standpoint. I would agree. Um, there's lots of just like dynamic dialogue um, that's going on. And I mean, Gary Oldman is just doing a lot in these scenes, especially there's one um, towards the end, which you know, don't want to hop into mm-hmm. spoilers too much. Um, that is just brilliant. It's a, it's a very extended scene compared to a lot of the scenes in this movies, or in this movie. But damn, does it play off? Yeah, uh, I, he had me laughing a lot. There, there was definitely a lot of uh, a lot of chuckles throughout this movie. Also, uh, got to give a shout out to Charles Dance playing William Randolph Hearst. Um, was one of my favorite parts of the movie, and then just like a lot of the big Hollywood characters that you hear of um, that are just like fairly sizable roles in this movie. So like uh, David O. Selznick, who was behind Gone with the Wind and uh, Wizard of Oz uh, was there. And then obviously Randolph first was, you know, kind of the biggest newspaper man of, <laughs> of that century. Um, so it's just cool to see like a lot of these historical characters intersect on top of, you know, Orson Welles and Louis B. Mayer, who are kind of more of the driving forces um, in Mank's story. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Um yeah, and uh, I don't know who the actor was there for Louis B. Mayer. I forget his name, but he was fantastic here. Yeah, I would I would agree. I think like this was just it's one of those movies where all the performances were just really solid across the board. And everybody pops in their own way, um, but there's still room enough for everybody 
um, you know, even even look at these dinner scenes, like it would be very easy for these scenes to get really crowded with how many characters you have and, and how much each of them needs to contribute to really stand out. Um, but the actors are just playing off of each other very, very well. Oh, 100 percent for sure. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely at some point looking forward to rewatching this thing. Definitely a lot more art house than other David Fincher movies. I really think it's probably one of his movies that will catch on the least in terms of just a, a, a general uh, movie going audience. Um, but I, I think it was definitely a, a worthy movie to make for him. And it's one that I'm glad he, he did for sure. Yeah, and I think kind of that art house feel is probably part of why we didn't see this crack the top 10. Um, I think once word gets out, it'll probably have a chance at jumping up a little bit. But just overall, it's not it's not something that just has that mass appeal like Zodiac or like the social network in, in the sense that it's, you know, directly connected to something that's pretty popular right now. Mm-hmm. No, I, I would, I would hundred percent agree there. And I mean, you look at Fincher's filmography and, and pretty much most of his movies, I wouldn't call them blockbusters by any means, but most of his movies do modestly well, actually pretty well, all things considered at the box office for how big they are. Gone Girl made several hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, uh, the the Dragon Tattoo uh, movie did very good as well. And Social Network made a lot of money as well. Um, his, his films generally make pretty good money at the box office. And they're generally very much movies that kind of everyone can watch. They're, they're always pretty thrilling. And there's always a lot of high stakes in them. But I'm, I'm glad that he, he, he got to make this because I think it shows a different layer of... Uh, of his um, of his kind of filmmaking talents as well, so I'm, I'm pretty happy that he did this. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. Um, so yeah, Mank was kind of the big release that we both watched, um, and then I also got the chance to check out The Godfather Coda, uh, which is a re-edit of The Godfather Three. <laughs> so I went into this pretty blind. Um, so I've seen The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two twice, um, and the second time I'd seen both of those movies was earlier this week, and I've never seen the third. Uh, when I watched the first two, uh, probably about two or three years ago, um, I was told, don't worry about it, um, just pretend it doesn't exist, and so I did pretty happily, uh, but then when I saw that this was coming to theaters and, and Coppola was able to make something that was just more in line with his vision – um, I was pretty excited to see it, thought I'll go check it out. And man, that was that was kind of a mistake. Um, <laughs> just like there are very few movies where I've been legitimately bored um, in the theater. But I was just like checking my watch, like how much longer is this? Um, just what a train wreck of a movie. Um, and so, I mean, part of it is like I can't really compare this to what the original was like because I never saw the original uh, Godfather 3. But I do know that it was a movie that uh, Coppola got kind of roped into because the only way Paramount was going to give him financing for other movies like Dracula um, was if he would agree to sign a contract for Godfather Part 3. So he did. He made it. It had a ton of production issues, including Winona Ryder dropping out and and Coppola's daughter having to take on the role of Mary kind of last minute and then just lots of issues with editing and and the constant battle that Coppola seems to have between him and the studio heads. And so I know he was always been pretty vocal about not liking how the third one turned out. So I do like that because Paramount thought they could squeeze some more money out of it. They gave him a 
chance to revisit it. Um, but this movie is just like a technical mess. Uh, so there are quite a few scenes where the dialogue just isn't in sync. Um, there's one extended shot in a courtyard in particular where Michael Corleone is talking to an archbishop and the wrong person's mouth is moving whenever the other person is talking. So it's kind of a wide shot, uh, but you can still see their lips moving and it's just all off. There's some really jarring cuts that just pull you out of the movie, um, particularly with the very end scene in the movie is you can clearly tell that he's just like cutting it two seconds before some other big thing happens so that the story changes a little bit. And it's just a mess. Like, I, I don't know if this is because, you know, it's 30 years later and this is just the footage he has, but um, it was just kind of embarrassing to be like a studio paid for this to be re-edited. And man, you can, you can see lots of issues in the production side of things. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, was it much longer than the regular uh, Godfather Part 3? So this one is actually shorter, um, just the the coda itself. Um, so this one was shorter than the first two um, by quite a bit. So the first mm -hmm. Godfather is like right at three hours. Um, Godfather 2 is at three hours and 20 minutes or so. Um, the coda was only at two hours and 40 minutes, which is still, you know, somewhat sizable. Um, but this movie was actually about four or five minutes shorter than the original 1990 release. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, doesn't sound like they did a, did a whole heck of a good job with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so there are obvious issues that like you can't fix, like Sophia Coppola's performance is just about as wooden as it gets. Um, you know, she, I, I, do you ever watch Ed, Ed and Eddie growing up? Mm -mm, no. Uh, so Ed and Eddie, there's a kid who his best friend is just a plank of wood. Um, and that plank of wood, whose name is Plank, would have given a better performance as uh, Michael Corleone's daughter. They had put her <laughs> in. And like part of the issue is you have a very untrained actress um, who's on screen with some of the best actors in the business. I mean, you've got Pacino in there, obviously <laughs> going to be... Um, one of the best actors of his generation, if, if not of the last, you know, hundred years. Um, and you also have Andy Garcia, who's, who's giving a really solid performance in this as well. And she just cannot keep up with either of them. Um, and so it just makes her look even worse on screen than her performance is already kind of making itself. Yeah. It's, it's kind of sad to hear, but I mean, that that's one of the infamous, uh, poor performances that, uh, I think um, that'll always kind of be, be mentioned as one of the worst in, in a movie that is otherwise pretty, I wouldn't say Godfather 3 is a, a well-liked movie, but I think it's a movie that obviously it's a, it's a grand movie and it's a, it's a big movie in history. That'll go down as one of the biggest uh, kind of blunder performances in a movie like that. Yeah. Um, and it's just, especially the level that the first two are on, mm -hmm. this one is just so impossibly below them. Um, and even if you listen to any interviews or read anything about Coppola talking about it, he's like, yeah, the story was done in Godfather 2. Um, and this is more kind of an epilogue. Um, so just a lot of it feels unnecessary. There's a really unbelievable romance that's supposed to be kind of the whirlwind of this. And then uh, Andy Garcia's character just never seems to have a real motivation other than just like heat of the moment romance. 
Um, and so he'll make decisions that you just don't really understand where he's coming from or where he wants to be going. And it's just, just a mess of a movie. Yeah. It's uh, it's a shame. It's a shame that, that, that it even probably got made in the first place, but it'll go down as one of the worst number threes as well. Yeah. It's uh it's, it is rough. <laughs> um, so yeah, those are, I guess you can call that a new release. Those are the new releases. Um, and then we've also been just kind of watching stuff on our own. So if you want to take it away with what you've been watching this past week. Yeah. So for the first time ever, I watched The Graduate, um, the 1967 film there uh, starring Dustin Hoffman. This is a good one. Uh, I, I didn't really, I knew the premise and all, but I, th- I think the movie had a lot more in it than I expected. Um I, I did enjoy it though. I, I, I'm only a few hours out of watching it, so I'm still kind of uh, letting it kind of, um, kind of mend in there. But yeah, it, it, was, it was definitely very good. I love this movie for sure, and the music's great. I mean, the Simon and Garfunkel they go they go off for this, and this is obviously where um, "Hello Darkness, My Old Friend" kind of originated. <laughs> so we thank we thank the graduate for that song, and for uh, Mrs. Robinson, obviously. Um, but yeah, this is definitely a good one that I'd recommend. If if you're gonna go back and watch 1960s classics, this is this has to be one of the ones that you make uh, make a priority to 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 check out. Yeah, so this is one that I caught um, pretty early on during quarantine earlier this year, and it's one that I liked, uh, but wasn't super crazy about when I saw it. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the movies that's really kind of stuck with me the most um, going at it going throughout the year um just one that i like find myself thinking of like funny moments or moments that i really liked um fairly regularly so it's definitely something i want to revisit again and just see with a little bit more perspective if i've really like latched on to it more yeah no i think i think it is one that is it it seems like it's the type of movie that is reasonable to revisit uh every so often because i i don't think it's like i do think it's pretty I do think it's uh, pretty accessible to to watch, and it's it's funny as well. It's enjoyable. Um, the the performances are good, and I think it just has it. it there's definitely a layer there just about uh, contemplating life and stuff like that that I think a lot of people can connect to, um, especially around our age as well. Uh, but yeah, this is this is a good one. Yeah, and then I mean, really, all I watched this last week was the first two Godfather movies. Um, you know, those, that's quite a time commitment. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, just some of the best like filmmaking out there. Um, and I, I think the first one is just really effortlessly iconic. Um, just every scene, there's something that has just become so ingrained in our culture or our conversation and and just (laughs) the way we talk and the way we quote things. Um, and it's just, if it's not a perfect movie, it's about as close as it gets. And then you go to the second one that it, it, it doesn't feel as effortlessly iconic, um, but it does feel a lot more focused and it takes just these much deeper swings with the character of Michael Corleone. And it really focuses in on uh, Pacino's strengths as an actor and just the strengths of that character. And, you know, having to kind of realize that you fully committed to this legacy that you hated growing up and, um like man these two movies are just on a different level um and and it makes the the third one even more disappointing um just seeing how much lower it is yeah no for sure um 
I, I'm pretty impressed, though, that uh, you, you sat down and watched those two to prepare to go watch uh, Coda this weekend. Yeah, I uh, I do nothing lightly, so. <laughs> um, it's a good way to be. I'm still just laughing. Like, do you know what, um, it, is there something that Coda stands for or what? Yeah, so uh, one thing that was cool about the theatrical release uh, for the Godfather Coda was that there's a little intro by Francis Ford Coppola, and he talks about it. Um, so Coda is a musical term, which is like, uh, it basically roughly translates to epilogue. It's like the final note um, gotcha. that really closes it all together. Um, and so he talks about why that was added to the title um, and gives a little background on that. And then just like the process for the movie itself. So that was, that was pretty interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Probably the best part of the uh, experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just all downhill from there. <laughs> um but that is kind of what's going on um we'll be back next week uh talking probably about mank a little bit more um and just whatever else is going on in this crazy year for movie news um so remember you can always check us out online at moviebabble.com 